0: You're listening to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBTQ adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with Chris and talking about doing foster to adopt when you never intended to. Hi Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Oh thank
1: you for having me on.
0: Well I have to say that is an intriguing thing to be talking to you about that you ended up opting <laughs> to adopt without intending to so do you want to take me back a little bit to how you decided to adopt and what your assessment process was like and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty of how you ended up with a baby when it wasn't necessarily your initial plan.
1: Yeah sure so um, we started the process two years ago from the day that we're recording today and we uh went through the assessment and training process. We hadn't considered foster to adopt at that point. we you know to our friends and family we were saying you know we expect to get a child that's going to be ten months or um one year or or even close to two years. We were looking under two really, and me and my husband weren't sure if foster to adopt was right for us, and maybe one day one of us would say it is and then the next day we would say it isn't. So we we were never really kind of, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that we weren't aligned on it, but we weren't consistent enough to know that that was going to be the approach that we wanted to take. So we went through the process, and even our social worker actually said that if he was going through the process, he wouldn't consider foster to adopt just because of who he is as a person, you know. So um, I think you need to have the kind of right, I guess, understanding and um Risk appetite and patience with it because it, it does feel very different to the kind of traditional type of adoption that um, people might know better. Um, anyway, fast forward to the point of being approved. We hadn't done the foster to adopt training. We got approved as adopters. We then had about six months of family finding, which we found really frustrating. We were seeing other couples that we'd met in the training process, you know, move through that quicker than us. We were trying everything on Link Maker, you know, spending lots of times spitting messages together that we thought were going to make as a really attractive couple and we just weren't getting what we wanted from that and then we thought well actually why don't we just put the training under our belt to say that we've done it and and also you might find that you might hear about a child in foster to adopt and then they come back to you later if it didn't work out for whatever reason if they've then got a placement order so we thought we would do it and then I think we decided with our social worker that we would do it if it was with the right child. And we felt the risk was something that we were able to take on. And that's what happened. Um, so Emma's been with us now for four months um, and she's six months old. So she was placed with us at two months.
0: So she was very tiny when she came to you then. Very tiny. <laughs> yeah, just, just remind me <laughs> a tiny bit. Was the risk the main thing that was putting you off when each of you was you know, on a different page at different moments? Was that driven by the risk?
1: Yeah, I think... It, it it was that fear that that child would be placed with you in your home and that you would then lose that child and how would you then move forward with the process um, if that's happened to you and whilst there wasn't any kind of horror stories out there that we had heard or had seen that within our agency it's something that naturally as humans you are going to kind of catastrophize I guess that that could happen to you but also I think there's a little bit of ego in it as well um It's not nice to think that you're just the foster carers at that point and you have to introduce you know this child to your family as a child under a foster to adopt placement and say that you know we we do intend to be her parents but as of right now legally we are foster parents and you know this is why we're going to contact on a weekly basis and you know this is why we need to be a bit more patient before we can put the adoption order in which we've been able to do now so we're at the end of that but i think there's there's lots of feelings and emotions that as much as you want to be child-focused and know that it's a really good thing that you're taking on the child um, into your home at such a young age, you do have to kind of just put your ego to the side of it a little bit and uh, just trust in the process, I guess.
0: Yeah, I can understand that. Um, We did a podcast with somebody who fostered to adopt and the child did return to birth family. And um, the person that talked to in that episode was quite pragmatic about that, about that being the best thing for that child, but also really honest about how incredibly hard that was. So yeah, I can absolutely understand why that was the biggest thing giving you concerns, really. So you initially were approved as sort of normal adopters, if you like, run of the mill adopters. And then you later did the foster to adopt course after the six months of family finding. So when you then started looking for children beyond that was it entirely foster to adopt placements that you were then looking at or was it still a range of kids
1: no so yeah so you're, you're right we were uh, we did the foster to adopt training after being approved so already at that point we were looking at children placement orders and then it was a decision that we took after um to to do the foster to adopt training and start to widen our search i guess and emma came to us just because Our social worker knew that we were the only couple within the agency that were approved for foster to adopt. And actually, we'd been a bit stunned, I guess, personally, that we had gone up against other couples for other children that didn't work out. And looking back now in retrospect, that was the best thing for us. But at the time, it didn't feel like that. So we were giving our social worker a bit of stick to say, we don't want to be going up against other couples. We don't want to keep feeling like we're being rejected, you know? So actually, it was kind of music to our ears when we heard. There's a very young baby out there that they're looking to move really quickly with. And we were quite impatient at that point because we felt like we were waiting a long time. We're speaking to other people now. We know it's not a long time, but it felt like a long time. And you're the only couple that we're considering. Um, and I think that really warmed us up. And there was also other things that we had to consider, like the risk as you know, I'm sure we're going to talk about. But um, that's how it kind of happens for us.
0: Yeah well that I mean that's nice and I can understand that thing of not wanting to be in competition without telling me which agency you're with I'm assuming that you're with um, a local authority or regional adoption agency in that case if they were talking about a child that was within their care Yeah. yeah okay um and so yeah let's talk a bit more about that risk then and what it means to consider taking a child at that age what those risks are.
1: Yeah I guess um you, you, you don't know how that child's going to develop because they're so young, firstly. Um, so a lot of health or kind of cognitive needs are unknown at that point because they're so little um, and you've got such little information to go off. In our case, we didn't know much about the pregnancy. So there was lots of assumptions to be made about, you know, how baby was developing in utero. There wasn't that information out there for us to, to, to know about. And, the, the biggest risk of all, is, as I've kind of touched on already, is is about that risk of that child leaving our home. That was that was our biggest fear. We are very lucky that in our support network, we have friends who are social workers that, you know, tell us all the right questions to ask to really assess that risk. And Emma is the second child um, from the same set of birth parents uh, to be removed. So we uh, were in a fortunate position from our perspective that A lot of the assessments on birth parents had been completed um, quite closely to Emma being born. Um, So we had a little bit of confidence that we knew the way that the courts were going to treat that case because of that. But we still had that fear, I guess, around um, uh, Emma not staying with us forever.
0: Yeah, I can understand that. And I think you're right that if there is an older sibling that's close in age, if all those assessments have been done once for one child, you do have some I guess, some ability to predict that it might be the same with the second child, but, but of course, no guarantee. How did you, um, what information did you use to look at things like what the child's needs might be? Because you sometimes get information, don't you, about the birth parents and their health and, and so on. Is that what you were looking at to try to understand what needs this child might have?
1: Yeah. So, well, we were very lucky, actually, that our foster carer who looked after Emma before she came to us, knew the family really well because she'd actually cared for the older sibling so she was able to give us even more information about the family that the social workers had given us I guess within the agency you've got the medical consultations and then also you've got Google you know you know you get a a statement on a on a CPR or a statement about the birth parents and, and you kind of spend hours just trying to work out is that something that we need to be concerned about is that something that we need to really consider if this is the right match for us so I think me and my husband we're quite logical thinkers we wouldn't go into something just based on a feeling we would need to make sure that we feel that it was right for us um, and it was considered so in this case it works out really well but there's there's lots of different things to consider um, and things to look at before you make sure that it's the right match for you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so from the point that you heard about the baby to the point that she was with you, how mm. long a gap was that?
1: Not long at all. So <laughs> my my employer was getting quite impatient because I was saying, you know, I think I might be going soon and then months and months went past where I didn't. There was a cover in place. So I was like, right, I'm I'm keeping all this annual leave. I'm going to book a holiday. Um, And we booked a last minute holiday that was going to take place in two weeks' time. And then we got the call. Of course, Um, inevitably, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just the way that it works out. So we got the call and then we said, okay, yeah, we'll we'll think about it. And then we met um, Emma's social worker to make sure that it was the right match. And then we said, okay, so how do we move forward? And they said, well, when can she move in? And we said, well, we're going off on holiday in a couple of days. And they said, when are you back? So we told them when we were back, which was a week later. And then I said, well, I need to do two days at work just to make sure I've handed things over. So that's literally how it happened. So all in all, it was probably about two weeks. And in that time, wow. we had to hand over work. We had to do our holiday, because that was the most important thing to us at that point, <laughs> and And buy lots of stuff for the house that we yeah. didn't know that we would need for a baby so young.
0: And, I mean, did you know what a baby that young needs? Because, you know, I remember with my first child... I just bought everything, any gadget that anyone told me would definitely make my life easier, I bought and can't begin to imagine how much I spent on these blooming gadgets that were going to make everything easier. (laughs) You know, if they said this will help it sleep, be quiet, be happy, be comfortable, whatever it was, we bought the blooming thing. So did you know what you needed? Are you good with babies already?
1: well, I, I would say we're good with young children and toddlers. I'd say we had no idea with babies. Our foster carer that supported us to do the transition was almost a bit of a super nanny. And we said to the social worker at the time, you know, what do we need? And and I remember him saying, Have you got a car seat? We said, Yeah. And he said, Right, you've got everything. We've we're thinking, No, we haven't. We you know, we we need a whole bedroom of um of things and then we, you know, you learn that the baby's gonna stay in the room with you. So no, to answer your question, we didn't know what we needed. Um, and actually, we didn't need that much, no. looking back, at all.
0: No, I think now if I was handed a newborn and told to care for it, the amount of stuff I would buy would be minimal. But back then, no, it was not minimal. It was the opposite yeah. of minimal. <laughs> so you know, a huge shopping spree, I guess, and then got you know got um, to the day when you were going to go and meet her and, and I guess, bring her yeah. home. Can you tell me about that day?
1: Yeah, so we spent three days with her before we brought her home so we we had one day um I think it was Friday before the weekend just to kind of do a bit of a chemistry test I guess and then we ran around the shops on a Saturday and Sunday um actually we didn't run around the shops we did Amazon next day delivery because that's what we felt was feasible because of how much time we had and then Monday Tuesday we spent with her and then I think on the Wednesday she she came home
0: gosh what a fast transition
1: yeah. you want for her yeah yeah I think I think if we were to do it again we would hope that we would have more time with her in the home that she's in than just bringing her home to us because you never know how you're going to feel when the social worker you know, comes along because they have to see them move into your home and then 10 minutes later they leave and you're like, what do we do with the baby now? We don't still don't really feel like we know her, you know. Yeah. Um So I think if we could do it again, I know that lots of agencies try to keep transitions as long as possible. I think we would hope to do that.
0: Yes, Absolutely. So you're left there with this baby. The social worker's just walked out. Yeah. You've got this baby. How were you both feeling and what did you do?
1: <laughs> um, I can't really remember, to be honest. I, I remember that we got to the end of the day and we thought, we haven't eaten all day. We've just been kind of running around and, you know, people are really desperate to visit and you're trying to bat them away. So, yeah, it's just, just a bit of chaos, really. And, yeah, we weren't experts in babies. So when the baby was crying, we were trying to figure out what does the baby need. But you know you get the handle of it in in a good couple of days, I guess.
0: It's is just weird, don't it? It's one baby, and if there's two adults, you think, "How is there no time at all? How have we both right. been busy for the whole entire day?" Yeah. And uh, yeah, I I thought I was coping dead well at first, but actually probably not. I do remember being phenomenally stressed the whole time. You know, if I wasn't watching the baby, I was poking the baby, and you know just. Is the baby still okay? Has it suddenly just stopped breathing for no reason? (laughs) They do that weird breathing, don't they, newborns, where they sort of breathe in and then they just stop. And you're like holding your breath and staring and staring and staring. And then it breathes again. You're like, okay, I can breathe again. And then it does it again. You're like.
1: (gasps) And and it's that feeling when you wake up in the night and you've not been woken up by the baby. So you go to run to check that the baby's (laughs) alive. You're like, why am I waking up naturally? This hasn't happened in, you know, forever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And is it too hot, too cold, too, right. too everything? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so you've got the baby now. And I guess I wonder, did you feel able to bond with that baby, given that ongoing question in the back of your minds about, will this baby be returned to birth family? How did that go? Because I, I can sort of imagine that it must be at the back of your mind.
1: Yeah. and that, And that's something that your social workers are constantly asking you. So you Even if you're not thinking about that, you're being asked to think about that. And and when you go to your matching panel, because I mean, some of your listeners will know, but some might not know that you still need to go to a matching panel to then formally be be placed with that child for adoption whilst you're in the process for foster to adopt. And then we had a whole panel of people asking us how we felt about that. And my answer was really simple. Um, As much as, you know, we are intelligent, mature people and we understand that we're part of a process and there's risk in that. We are human and humans fall in love with other people. And um, in our case, Emma was really lovable and and we felt that she was loving us back. So I wouldn't say that we put in any kind of barriers to protect ourselves. Um, I don't think we could have because we needed to have the hope, I guess, that this was going to work out really well. And for the time that we have that uncertainty, we just need to almost... that to the back of our minds and and put the hope in the front of our minds to to kind of get through it and that works for us it might not work for everybody but that that's what works for us
0: yeah I can see that you can't hold back entirely can you you know you could you say you're human and and also really the point of an early placement for the child is that they are able to form those bonds you know that's the point of it so yeah I can understand but I can also understand that little voice in the back of your head just reminding you yeah And I guess then you were doing contact as well, where you had contact
1: work. Yeah, so we were taking um, Emma to see birth parents on a weekly basis, and then that phased down to bi-weekly. And then we did a a, a see you soon session um, recently, not a goodbye session, um, because we're planning to uh, keep direct contact. And we've actually met the birth parents recently, just us and them without Emma there.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so let me just ask you a couple of questions about the contact before I ask you about that, because that's quite an unusual arrangement. Um, So in the contact sessions, was that contact where were you seeing the birth parents? Were you all in the same room or was it at a contact centre?
1: No. So we were going through one entrance at a different time to them and they were arriving early, going through the back entrance. um, And there was a handover process in the reception where we would hand um, baby over to the worker with a bag full of everything that they needed for that one hour and a half or two hours, whatever it was for that week. And then we would come back at the end. Um, we would get a communication book, which would say how the session went. But it was very factual. It would just say things like "Baby's had a nappy change or struggled to take the bottle today. So you might want to do a bottle sooner when you get home. There was there was no sort of um, story or um, feeling about how that session went. So I don't know. It It felt like a process that we had to do and actually... I think it's really important that we tell Emma when Emma does become a teenager and have all these feelings about her identity and who are the birth parents and and what did that look like at the start of her life that we we did that. But it was it was very weird to not know what was happening in the room when you're spending 23 hours for the rest of the day with the baby. So, yeah. So I stopped you for your next question. I'm just waffling on here.
0: No, do waffle away. It's fascinating. And and did Emma cope? with that because I know that I've heard people say that sometimes the baby can be quite unsettled after after contact just because it's people that they're not so familiar with and also contact workers and so on that are involved with that and people have sometimes said that the baby comes back a little bit
1: unsettled. Um, no I've, I've heard that a lot actually um, from people within the centre and our, and our foster carer as well but um, in our experience I think she was so small that She was quite adaptable just to kind of any situation, and she was always very good at taking comfort from from anyone. And maybe that's a sign of her early trauma and, you know, her adoption. But I didn't worry about her when she was in the room. It's more just wanting to know that she's getting the attention that she deserves because you just didn't know what was happening. She did often come out of the session asleep, um, but, you know, baby sleep. So I didn't really kind of read into that. Um and actually I saw that as a really positive thing that she felt comfortable enough to fall asleep when she was in there.
0: Yeah, I can I can see that would be a comfort. And um I think it's strange though, isn't it, that when you have the child placed for adoption, or in your case, foster to adopt, you know, but we had our child placed for adoption and then it was months before the adoption went through.
1: Right.
0: That weird reminder that you are kind of the parent to be, but not the parent yet. Yes. And so there are these things that happen that even though you are supposed to be bonding as if you are the parent, you aren't legally the parent, therefore you don't have any veto power over any of these things. This sort of, I found it quite an odd, quite an odd thing to be responsible for the child's everyday needs and so on, but not having the power for every decision that relates to that child. I found that a very
1: strange mix. One hundred percent agree. I couldn't agree with that more.
0: Yeah. So okay, and then you've you are going to have um, direct contact with the birth parents. Can you say about that because it's really unusual
1: that people have that. Yeah, we hope so. I mean, we've we've been on a bit of a journey with that as well, I guess, because um, at the start, we w- we weren't receiving photos of birth parents. And we thought that was really important for life story. We wanted to have some photos of what was happening in the contact centre as an example to show, you know, because I've got sisters and when they were teenagers, they are a bit of a nightmare. And I know that she might grow up and say, well, no, that didn't happen. And if I've got a photo there to show her, I can say, well, it did. So we were we were a little bit skeptical about how direct contact was going to work if birth parents weren't willing to provide photos for the life story and then the social workers were talking to us about you know direct contact you would hand her over and then you would leave her in the room with her and we thought well actually we understand that it needs to be um it needs to be their time together when when she's in the process of being adopted but after we'll make the decisions about whether we're in the room or not, um, because we need to build up that trust between us and the birth parents, firstly. Um, and also, I, I think for some three, four, five, six-year-olds, that could be quite scary, you know, being dropped off to a centre and being handed over. So we'll, we'll do what's right for her at that point. So we were having those conversations with the, the social workers and, you know, they were saying to us that birth parents might have a different feeling on that. Um, and I guess that's where it becomes quite complex, so I was really pushing for a meeting with the birth parents to say, actually, I think that whilst we're in the process and we've got the structure around this and we've got social workers that know the family really well um, because they've been working them with them uh, closely for a couple of years now, not just with, with Emma, but with her sister too, that we asked to meet them um, and we can start to build that relationship. And I think hopefully they found comfort from meeting us and knowing you know, that Emma's hopefully with nice people Um I think we were very nice to them they were nice back to us mm-hmm. um, but it means that when we do meet them and we're not with the same team of social workers you know it's, it could be in a new environment that none of us have been to before that we've established that foundation of a relationship and trust and that we can go on in the way that we intend to you know things might change over the years um, but at least we've done everything we can in this process to control how well we can start that relationship.
0: Yeah, I think that sounds, it sounds really positive. And I know that um, it seems that the adoption system is moving more towards more contact post-adoption. And so, you know, my son was placed a decade ago. And yeah, letterbox contact was pretty much all that anybody expected or did. And even that was only with the birth mother, you know, there was no requirement for that to be any sort of wider birth family. But it really does feel like there is much more of a move towards that. And it says, um, I'm hearing that the courts are pushing for that as well in order to grant adoption orders. So um, I think that your situation for all that it's unusual now is going to become more usual, that people are going to be asked to do that more and more.
1: Yeah, and we, we saw profiles of quite a few children, actually, in the time that we were family finding. And there were, I don't think there were any profiles where direct contact wasn't something that they were hoping that we would be supportive of.
0: Yeah, it would be interesting how the system supports that in future, because, you know, I can understand that right now you've got lots of social workers involved. But I guess there is a question in my mind, five years, seven years, 10 years down the line, under-resourced local authorities, how they're going to facilitate face-to-face contact especially if it's slightly complicated it'll be interesting to see what resources go with that requirement you know
1: yeah I agree I think that's why we were very conscious that whilst we were in the process that we would do everything that we can within our control and our power to um, try and start that as well as we can because we know that people are complex and for for Emma she's not only got me she's got my husband that might have a different feeling about it in a couple of years time she then has one birth parent and the second birth parent that might not stay together and might separate so it becomes um quite unpredictable about how that might look um so i think that's why we wanted to make sure that we could start that as as well as we could
0: i think it's a good idea i guess my own sort of cynical head comes because uh, my son has now four younger half siblings and we haven't been informed of the birth of the last two we know because he has other siblings and their adopters have told us that other children have been born but we're so far not in the loop that we literally never had any official notification that they even exist so um i guess that's what raises for me questions about a decade down the line how any of these contact arrangements will be supported and maybe there will be and maybe there will be resources that go with it but i look at these local authorities and i think well I know right now that my son has a younger half-sibling who's currently in foster care, probably awaiting adoption. But I only know that because the other adopters have told me that and because they're quite good at Facebook searches. And so right. it's not ideal, you know, as a system. And actually, while while we're talking, I've just made myself a mental note. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to ring the local authority that's relevant to that and have a little word after we've spoken. So <laughs> thank right. you for prompting me to sort my own life out. Good luck
1: um, with that.
0: Thanks. Yeah, I'll look forward to being <laughs> on the stage for quite some time. You mentioned that your child also has an older sibling. Um, yeah. Are you in contact with that sibling and how does that look?
1: Yeah, so before um, Emma got her placement order, the court had actually asked that her current carers at that point. So we were seeing the foster carers were facilitating sibling contact. So um, as a byproduct of that, because the sibling is been, it has been placed, sorry, with... Um, a grandparent under an SGO, we were then forming a relationship with um, one of Emma's grandparents um, as well as the sibling. I mean, the two little ones, they they don't really understand why they're kind of being shoved into a room <laughs> with each other because one's at that point three months and one is getting close to two years. But, you know, we've got all the photos and everything to um, take from that. And we hope to maintain that going forward. And actually we speak directly to the grandparent on on WhatsApp um, and there's a really healthy relationship there. So you, the plan at the moment is to see uh, the sibling four times a year. Now, if I'm really honest with you, and I haven't said this to the social workers, so I really hope they're not listening and they, they <laughs> recognise my voice. I think four four times a year is quite a lot. I don't see some of my friends four times a year. Yes. You know? Are they um, local to you? They, they, yeah, about an hour away. Okay. Yeah. and We don't want to share our location, so we'll always go to them. and that, And that's fine. That works for us. Um, what we do have is birthdays, which are six months apart. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think that's a really good structure to maintain that contact to say, you know, we'd like to see you around, you know, Emma's sister's birthday and you come to see or we come to see you, sorry, um, at Emma's birthday six months later. And I feel I feel like that's a lot more natural because that's what families do. They see each other around birthday times or, you know, around Christmas. In our case, we've got a birthday around Christmas that we would see her on. And I think that's more helpful because then you don't have the feeling of, oh, should I be messaging to say, oh, it's been three months, we haven't seen you. Or do they then feel able to contact us and say, you know, it's been three months, we haven't seen you. That was part of the plan, you know. So I think we need to have that conversation a bit more frankly with them. Once we've we've got the adoption certificate, we're we're waiting on that at the moment. But we'll see what that looks like as as we go forward.
0: Yeah, and I think... As well, I can see that adoptions where there is open contact with several birth family members is a good thing. You know, siblings is fairly standard and has been for a long time. Um, birth parents, birth grandparents, and so on again, can potentially give a child a real sense of its wider family and, and alleviate some of those questions later about well, where did I come from? Who am I and so on.
1: Yeah. And that's um, sorry, just to to stop because yeah. I think that's particularly important for us because Emma has, um, is half British, but then has a heritage um, somewhere else in Europe. So actually, that's really important for her as she grows up to have that relationship with the grandparent that's from that country um, and speaks that language more than they speak English, because we're not able to provide that. We, we don't have that knowledge um, and we don't want that to be something that's hidden away. We, we, we really want to put that at the forefront of her life. And the way that we best can do that is by keeping up that contact with the grandparent if it works.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can see what a massive benefit that is, especially, yeah, where there are cultural issues and language stuff, that the child could really benefit from access to those. I saw this lovely thing. Um, my partner went on some uh, on a training course and it was about transracial adoption. Or, you know, transcultural adoption would be relevant there as well. And it was called The Cultural Iceberg. And the idea was that the things that we think of as culture are the things above the waterline. So very obvious things like language and food and so on but below the waterline on this diagram was things around sense of humor and ideas of appropriate dress in different circumstances and you know things like books and movies and and jokes and things like that and all of those things are also parts of culture that are passed on when you grow up in your birth family and that you lose when you grow up in something else I thought that was really interesting I'll try and find a link to it because somebody actually designed this thing so I'll try and find a link to it and stick it in the notes for this episode but um But I guess the thing around contact, though, that raises questions in my mind about all of that is that, yes, it's a really positive thing when it goes well, but there is a reason why children can't live with their birth family. And some of those reasons are simply that they can't live with them, but some of those reasons are that that contact contains risk as well. And so I guess that raises questions in my head. And also, you know, looking at your situation and the requirement that you're in touch with the sibling four times a year is just about doable when there's one sibling. But my son now has four siblings placed in two different families. So if that was four times a year, well, that's four times a year with one family, but potentially four times a year with the other family as well. Well, that could be eight times a year unless that's combined, you know, following the same model. And at what point does it become impossible? And like you say, at what point is it eclipsing other relationships that the child has? And it's just that balance, I think, is is complicated about how do we meet these needs in a way that's realistic and sustainable.
1: Yeah, and your listener won't see that I'm nodding my head like that dog (laughs) in the back of the car in the advert (laughs) to to what you're saying. And in in our case, um, that risk has been assessed by social workers and it's deemed quite low. So that's why we've always gone into this quite positively, but we might feel differently if if that was a different conversation. And also our our birth parents um, are quite young like, very young, actually. So it's very likely, potentially, that more siblings will come along. And we'll need to keep monitoring that and um, see if that works for us, as you say.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so tell me what stage you're at now.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm trying to remember because I've had such little sleep that I don't really know what day it is. <laughs> um, but <laughs> we uh, Emma's lived with us now for four months. Um, a placement order was granted about two months into that. And um, we've now submitted the um, adoption order application. We're waiting for a court hearing and then everything else will follow.
0: Fabulous. Well, I hope that all goes very smoothly. Thank Before you. you leave us, Chris, can I ask what advice you'd have? Because you've got quite an unusual journey, actually. You know, I wonder what advice you would have for other people embarking on their journey to become adopters.
1: Uh, well, I think for me personally, I would say... Have patience, um I think I've reflected a lot in myself that um I'm not a very patient person, and to trust in the process and that hopefully everything works out for a very good reason. We had lots of stumbling points and lots of lows, um but the highs looking back now have been worth it, but it didn't feel like that at the time, and it didn't feel like that for a long time after Emma had been placed with us. I still felt a bit stunned by it, um so have that patience and that perseverance to kind of see the the long game which is much easier said than done. Much, much easier. <laughs> I agree completely. <laughs> and uh, I guess the second one um, relevant to what we've been talking about is just do the foster to adopt training. Um, we we were very much no um, to the idea of it at the start of the process just because we kept changing our minds. We thought that that was a bad thing, but actually information is power, you know, so go along and make an informed choice about whether that works for you. And actually every foster to adopt Like every child is very different and their background and their circumstances. You don't have to say yes um, to the first foster to adopt child that comes um, in front of you. You know, you can say no and then look for the one that does have the right level of risk that you're you're willing to take on. Um, So do the training and um, open your mind, because for us, it worked out really well. And I didn't think that I would be saying that um, at the point of doing the training.
0: That's brilliant. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much for having me
0: of course i'd like to thank my guest today chris if you enjoyed this podcast please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk adoption fostering and tea is produced by new family social the presenter was me Tor doherty with music from matt doherty the producer was john jenkins we'll be back next time with more guests and more tea